name is Yamir Chabor. I'm a Colombian American. I was born in Queens, New York. Um, family from uh, these parts of Colombia known as uh, Tolima, that's where my father's from. And my mother's from the department of Cundiramarca. Um, I am an activist, an internationalist, and somebody who has experience working in media, mostly uh, making analysis for uh, Telesud English. Uh, and I've been uh, active in organizing or, or being part of the mobilizations out in the streets in New York City with the Colombian diasporic community. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for the introduction. Um, we'll just go ahead and dive right into the first question. Um, so right now, a lot of people um, in the States, unfortunately, don't know what's happening in Colombia. So in the best way that you can, um, how would you describe uh, the immediate situation on the ground for comrades and people um, living in Colombia? Yeah, so to describe the situation of what's going on in Colombia to the people of the United States, there has been an uprising of the people from many different sectors, whether it's the working class, whether it's the teachers, um, doctors, students, indigenous leaders, Afro-descendant leaders, or people from the LGBTQ due to the illusion of neoliberalism that people, the Colombian people, have been exposed to due to the crisis of COVID-19. So all of this started on April 28th when the Colombian people organized a uh, strike, a national strike against a neoliberalist reform known as La Reforma Tributaria, which was meant to increase taxes on food, water, gas, and utilities. And the government did all of this to uh, try to supplement or stimulate the economy due to the fact that the economy was dropping because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that right there was the straw that broke the camel's back because people during this pandemic have lost jobs, haven't been able to work, have been evicted. And also the fact that Colombia is one of the country in the world where social leaders get killed or assassinated by paramilitary forces that are connected towards the Colombian state. So um, with this reform, it, uh, it, it took away the people's right to eat, in essence. And people have been out in the streets. But more than that, there's been uh, a more of an uprising. Like the uprising has intensified due to the repression from the Colombian state coming from the secret police ESMAD. You had the first five days of the national strike where the people were able to get the Colombian government of Ivan Duque to roll back the reform, even though they haven't rolled it back fully. They're right now trying to figure out how they could redraft it, but the people are more outraged also by the response of the state with the militarization and with the, the riot police known as ESMAD that were ordered, not by President Ivan Duque, but by the ex-president Alberto Uribe Vélez to go and shoot protesters as that that has outraged Colombians because it showed of how they they don't have the freedom of speech and they don't have the freedom to protest because the state is fascist in essence the state goes and shoots protesters for protesting 
for their human rights and for their basic needs. Thank you so much. And um, as a quick follow-up before we move on to the next question, um, you mentioned how Uribe um, gave the order. We know that Defense uh, Minister, I believe, uh, Milano, has been the one on the forefront of the repression of protesters. Do you know what the relationship is between Milano and uh, Uribe? I don't know too much of the relations, to be honest, between Uribe and Milano, but uh, I could just say that it's, it amazes me the fact that Alvaro Uribe is not the president anymore, but he he has influence over the military and the police more than the sitting president, Ivan Duque. And I say this because I believe it was either May 4th or May 5th where Uribe went on Twitter and gave the orders for the riot police ESMAD to go and shoot protesters under the, the, the pretext of d defending private property and also to fight this like the so-called narrative of this internal enemy these vandals these 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 um these uh, protesters that are infiltrators he uh, Uribe is also coming out with this rhetoric this can this leftist conspiracy that it's the FARC or that it's um Nicolas Maduro from Venezuela or China that have infiltrated these uh protests and have created this mass uprising so it, it, it shows how Uribe is really the main uh, actor, the main figure in all of this. Duque is just a puppet that follows orders from him, but he has um, he has a, uh, a, a a movement behind him. This this right wing fascist movement that goes back to the two thousands, which I could get a little bit more in depth because he has this fascist ideology called Uribismo. And yeah, I mean, I I, I, I get more into depth about that. No, yeah, no, thank you so much for that context. And we'll move right along because one of the later questions will definitely touch on that. So we can definitely touch on that um, in, in, just a, in just a little bit. Um, so the next question I have is, uh, to the best of your knowledge, um, what role has private and state-owned media played in the protests overall, or at least in terms of shifting the narrative, how informed Colombians are, especially Colombians in the diaspora? So like, to the best of your knowledge, like, what is their role in this? Oh man, the 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 role of the media is just uh crazy in this whole dynamic of the protests and the uprising. I, I feel like you have these uh media outlets like Caracol or RCN that are very known in Colombian households that are losing a lot of legitimacy just because of the way they have re been reporting on the protest. Um, you have. And also, like a lot of them are owned by Uribe, so these are these are this is like Uribe's media, uh, and they the way they have been reporting on the protests juxtaposes what people have been able to see for their eyes through social media, through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter. Uh, so it it, it it's a uh, it's amazing um, just how just how uh, social media has been a uh he's been on the forefront against this media war countering the narratives of the outlets like i said again like rcn or caracol that want to say that the the protests are not as bad as they are or that the protesters are uh, vandals or they're criminalizing the protesters you like you have the case of this this uh 
protester named Lucas Villa from the city of Pereira that it's a tragic story. Um, the fact that the media tried to demonize his image and say that he was leading violent protests, but yet uh, he was a person that was trying to lead a peaceful protest. Uh, I mean, he's a he's a he's a he's a student activist that was assassinated. But the the thing the, the thing that's uh, tragic about that story is the fact that he uh, was was he's a, he was put he, he was probably a pacifist uh, trying to lead people towards peaceful protests, but you know, in with, with essence of resistance. And he, uh, he would, he would, uh, like there are, there are videos of him saying hi to people on the bus, giving flowers to people, giving flowers to the police, even giving flowers to the riot police Esmond. And irony of all of that is that when he was going home that same night, he, uh, Esmond rolled up to him on a motorcycle and assassinated him. So he, uh, he has now become a symbol for the protesters in, in Colombia. And that and, and then the, the media just covers that story and just flips it around and say that he was um, leading a violent protest, he was blockading traffic. And it, it, it just amazes me how they just flipped his, his whole story. Another, another thing is they have also engaged in blocking the internet in cities like Cali, because uh, the city of Cali has led a massive rebellion. They have been on the forefront. The youth over there have been on the forefront of the rebellion against the secret police ESMAD. And the, the private media outlets have pushed for the Colombian state to block internet. So the international community won't be able to see what is going on in that city. Just for the purposes of uh, our audience, just to make sure that they are uh, just aware of the specific name. Can you repeat uh, the name of the protester that was assassinated by a uh, Colombian uh, police? Luis, Luis Villa. I apologize if I was saying it in Spanish, but Luis. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Luis, Luis Villa. Wonderful. And uh, no, thank you for that context about the uh, media and the uh, internet blackouts in Cali. Um, that is that is really awful. And um, it's at least heartening to hear that our comrades down there are still in, in good resistance against the state. So, you know, that's it's awful, but we appreciate the context. Moving right along, um, you mentioned it earlier in uh, when I asked you the first question, uh, but just as uh, we to summarize quickly, what are the main demands of the general public in Colombia and the diaspora overall for um, Uribe's, uh, well, Duque's government under Uribe? So like, what are, like, just in quick summary, like, what are the main demands? So, yeah, the, the, the main demands of the protesters, it's coming from different sectors. Like, you have the working and the union sector that are trying to ask for uh, better employment and for better uh, be working benefits. You have the teacher and student sectors that are demanding uh, better investment in science and in other uh, education uh, sectors and other education areas. You have doctors and healthcare workers that are demanding uh, better investment in the healthcare system of Colombia and to roll back the reform 010, which is a neoliberalist reform that privatized the healthcare system in Colombia. And that was all due to the ex-president Alvaro Uribe. And you have the indigenous and Afro-descendant sectors 
that are demanding the defense of their social leaders not to get assassinated by paramilitary force and also to uh, respect their ancestral rights to, to, to their lands. And you have women and LGBTQ sectors that are demanding the, the, the halt of femicides and as well as uh, the killings of LGBTQ people. So you have all these different demands coming from the different marginalized sectors within Colombian society, as well as you have the diaspora, which is surprisingly to see how this has also affected Colombians that live outside of Colombia. Just like one, one thing that probably people don't know is that Colombia is also a country that has a high IDP, internally displaced populations, uh, which has been reported by the United Nations uh, due to the due to the uh, armed conflict, and yeah, due to the armed conflict and the type of uh, economic system that Colombia has, they have a lot of displaced population uh, due to the war, or you, they have also people immigrating out due to lack of economic opportunities. Uh, so, as well as what you're seeing in the diaspora is Colombians coming out, whether it's the United it's the United States, whether it's Canada whether it's uh, England, Spain, or uh, Australia, or even uh, neighboring Latin American countries. So uh, th this, this is a very historical moment for the marginalized in, in, in the Colombian society, whether it's the working class, indigenous, Afro, LGBTQ, students, doctors, or even people in the diaspora. Wonderful, that was all great context, thank you. Um... Wow, that's so much. I didn't even know about um, internally displaced uh, populations, so that that's uh, really, really uh, uh, important information to know. Um, is there anywhere to like for people to learn more about internally displaced populations? Like any good sources on that? Um, you can check out sources like Venezuelan Analysis or Mission Verdad, or um, check out the, the United Nations uh, documents on internally displaced populations. Uh, Colombians, we we're we're up there right next to Syrians and Palestinians. Uh, like we have over six million Colombians, like displaced Colombians that live in Venezuela and neighboring Venezuela, and I believe we have over three million that live in neighboring Ecuador. And this is a uh, this is an irony because uh, the Colombian state always wants to like invade Venezuela or talk about how Venezuelans are migrating out of their country even though that's a whole different type of topic due to the U US sanctions and economic war. But there's a, there's a whole population of displaced Colombians, more of a population that live in Venezuela. So that, that's just to give people a sense of like perspective. Thank you. Moving uh, right along to our next question um, to stay on time. What is the likelihood of Duque's administration, uh, which has a lot of orders coming from Uribe, um, actually scrapping or getting rid of uh, Reforma Tributaria? Like, what is the actual likelihood of that happening? Like, is it just regular neoliberal grandstanding saying that they'll quote-unquote reevaluate it? Like, what's the current situation with the quote-unquote reforms? At this moment, I really don't know. And I, and I say this uh, humbly and sincerely because of the fact that in the history of Colombia, you never have had a president try to roll back a reform, a neoliberalist reform. Um, and as of right now, I think they're trying to figure out 
what is going to be their next step to try to re repress these these protests. But I do feel like if the protests keep keep going, that it has to force the state to come to certain solutions for for their population. It's it's very difficult because like I don't I don't want to get too too ahead of myself, but like Colombia has never had like in its history a president ever resign. Any, any anything could happen, but as of right now, this this right here is a, a very historical point within the Colombian the Colombian people. Like there 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 has to be a change come that that needs to come out of this. That actually answers uh, the next question of, or at least, you know, uh, partially answers the question of, do you foresee the protests stopping if the reforms are scrapped? I feel like you answered that because if since there is no precedent of, of this happening, at least in recent history, you know, I, like from, from what we've been discussing so far, it doesn't seem likely that the protests would stop even if the reforms are scrapped. Um, because there's still the issue of femicide, there's still the issue of killings of indigenous and social leaders, and like other types of issues that are going on in the country right now. Uh, unless you have anything else to say about protests potentially stopping if the reforms are scrapped, I feel like you did answer that question. Um, also, no, I, I forgot to mention this other demand too. The people want to uh, cut military budget. Uh, one, one thing to like get into as well is that during the whole pandemic during the whole COVID-19 pandemic the uh, the Duque administration has been focusing on wrapping ramping up their military and putting more investments with within the military and the, the reform the tributaria the, those taxes were to go into more of the military and this the, and, and the, the, the uh, a thing to get into as well is how uh, Colombia is one of the main sponsors of military aid from the United States. Uh, and this goes back to the 2000s with the Plan Colombia initiative, which was uh, drafted by uh, sitting President Joe, Joe Biden. So um, that that's one also another demand that the Colombian people are demanding from the state to cut military budget. And given the fact that right now the people of Colombia are confronting the militarization of the police and all of this is being paid for by U.S. tax dollars. I don't mean to get too much ahead of myself, but um, that's also another thing to keep in mind. No, yeah, wonderful. Um, and it, it definitely, because that was actually going to be a follow-up is like what is the role of the u.s here and i think you've touched on that really well is that like in the context of israel palestine and in the context of colombia and also the context of the united states and its history there's a lot of overlap with how close these militaries are how much funding not just from taxpayers in colombia but also taxpayers in the united states paying the colombian military to to, to carry out these repressions so i think i think you've really really touched on really important context there moving along to our next question how does the Colombian state utilize, uh, quote unquote, like internal enemies to justify repression of opposition forces? And what other things come to mind with the history as well as the current context of internalized enemies? So that has been a narrative coming out of the Colombian state from the oligarchy for many uh, decades, for over a century, that they've always had to convince the Colombian people that they have to fight an internal enemy. And that's why they're constantly in this stage of war. This could go back all the way to the 1960s, where they said that the internal enemy that they had to fight was communist. And due to that, 
They allowed the United States under the Kenny administration to form the paramilitaries. The, the paramilitaries, uh, the origins of them, these death squads come from, from 1962 under the na uh, National Security Doctrine, uh, which was something that was pushed under the Kennedy administration for, for all of South America, uh, as far as uh, trying, to, trying to counter the influence of the Cuban Revolution. All of this was in reaction to the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, which they triumphed in 1959. And it's a very watershed moment for Latin America. And I don't wanna get too, too into that, but like in the context of Colombia, the, the United States uh, took measures in order for it not to happen in Colombia. And you had uh, uh, this general named William Yarborough that goes to Colombia in 1962 and forms the paramilitaries as a secret army in order to suppress either farmers or social leaders or peasant leaders under the pretext that of, uh, of communist su suspicion or communist uh, alliance. So you, you have in 1964, an example of this, where you have a region in Colombia called Marquetalia, that was a region that was autonomous for farmers. And the, the United States saw that region as a threat and told the Colombian government to attack that region, to bomb that region. And that's what the Colombian government did. They uh, bombed that region. Over 50 people got killed. And that's where you have the formation of the FARC. The FARC comes out of a defense formation uh, for, for farmers. And uh, these, are, these, are, these are many different examples to implement Plan Colombia. Plan Colombia was a, uh, a, an initiative to give military aid. And this all, all of this was architect during the, the Clinton administration with the help of Joe Biden, who's now nowadays president, the sitting president. And this would give billions and billions of uh, millions and millions of dollars in military aid towards the Colombian state. Uh, and this would um, allow the United States to have over nine military bases. Well, seven at the time, but now they have nine military bases within Colombia on this whole pretext of fighting the war on drugs. But ever since Plan Colombia has been implemented, drug exports has increased within Colombia. Colombia is one of the, the countries in the world that exports a lot of drugs. And th these drugs, they still come into the United States. You have uh, in 2016, the peace accords in, uh, in Havana, Cuba, where the Cuban government helps facilitate a peace agreement between the leftist guerrillas of the FARC and the Colombian government of Juan Manuel Santos. So what happens there is you have over 20,000 uh, combatants of the FARC that disarmed. And that therefore, that, that took away that whole rhetoric from the Colombian state of blaming the guerrillas. So they had nobody to blame as of right now uh, with these uprisings. Um, they're trying to, like I said before, they're trying to blame the FARC, but the FARC is not a big army like they, were, they used to be. They're trying to blame the government of Nicolas Maduro. They are trying to take. They're trying to take away this whole this whole rhetoric of like the people are uprising because they cannot breathe. There's no opportunity in this country. The youth 
don't have a future. The youth don't have employment. They don't have access to education. They don't have access to health care. And right now they're not having access to food. Um, I know you said that um, I may have been going on a tangent, but that actually perfectly uh, encapsulates the context that we're going for here, because it's not just a matter of the consequences of the war on drugs or the consequences of the Cold War. It all like coalesced and it's all like the development of uh, since the Cold War, pretty much the the dialectical development from there. Really, really great context. Um, and it actually answers uh, the second half of my next question for you. The The, the, the thing that is really important to understand right now is the potential of a quote unquote new civil war. Like, does that hold any weight? Because I know that some alternative uh, Colombian uh, media outlets and, and like some other like outlets in the diaspora have been like saying that there could be one. And I know that you mentioned earlier that there is uh, a rebellion in, in Cali and South of Cali, just like, it, does that hold any weight? Are they just rumors? Is it more than a civil war? Like, what what is the the current situation in that end? And it does it resemble anything from 1964? Yeah. So, um, as far as like this leading towards a civil war, I can't tell, but I could say that this is a polarizing factor within the Colombian people. So, this whole topic of civil war, where that's nothing new to Colombian people that this has been a part of our history. Uh, a good example is what happened in 1948, where you had the liberal progressive candidate, Jorge Eleazar Gaitan, who was running for the Colombian presidency at that time and wanted to run on the, on the pretext of agrarian reform, just because he saw the effects of uh, U.S. imperialism. I mean, he was he was an anti-imperialist during uh, the early 1930s with the banana massacres that was orchestrated by the United Fruit Company. So this uh, liberal leader gets uh, assassinated, and then you have a social uh, uprising or turmoil that's known as the Bogotazo, where you had people in Bogota rioting, and that led to a civil war between liberals and conservatives known as La Violencia that would follow for a 10-year period. And well, th this was a civil war between two uh, oligarchy, oligarchy uh, factors, the, the liberals and con the conservatives. And you had uh, the farmers who were who would later on go to form the FARC, follow the liberals, but the liberals were very like bourgeoisie, type of uh um i would say i guess like revolutionaries to say or like they were they were come they were come and go I, just to give just to give context of like how colombia is a country where they they've had internal civil wars i mean you like you have like i said you had what happened in the 1948 bogotazo you had the 10-year period of the violencia then you had in the 60s the formation of the farc you had you also had the formation of other guerrilla groups like the eln um M19, Kitelame, uh, EPL, and these are all guerrilla groups that would go and fight the, the state, the Colombian state, and also the paramilitaries trained and funded by the United States, which would create a 60-year armed conflict within the, the country. You know, like, I, I don't, like, I, I'm not saying that, like, um, I'm against, like, a civil war, but I feel like it needs to be like it needs to be connected to the people's struggle. It needs to be connected towards a um a, a big time 
like change towards the state because it's the, the, the state that, that the Colombian people are living under is a narco fascist state and it's supported by the United States. Once again, I might be getting ahead too ahead of myself, but like to connect it to the Palestinian struggle, because I've been also like working with like a lot of Palestinian organizations here in New York and being part of the rallies trying to connect Colombia and Palestine, because it's, it's, it's literally the same struggle. So I was like, the way the Palestinians are like, the struggle for the Palestinian, for Palestinian liberation, is a struggle for peace in essence. You know, like like Israel is the is a terrorist state, but the Palestinians are struggling for peace. And it's not just peace for like them, it's also peace for the Middle East because of Israel's ambition to expand their military presence throughout the Middle East. The same thing with Colombia. The Colombian people, I mean, if they like the 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 rebellion or I guess the resistance, in my opinion, needs to focus on peace, uh, a radical peace, revolutionary peace for, for the continent of Latin America. Because just like the Palestinians, when the Colombian people are confronting this, this militarized force supported by U.S. tax dollars, they're confronting, the, they're, they're, they're confronting against the militarization of all Latin America. That's, that, that's, that, that's like the... I feel that needs to be the essence, like the Colombian people fighting for peace because Colombia has been a country that has never been allowed to have peace. No, uh, that's really great. And it's amazing how you were able to uh, bring uh, Palestine into the context of this as well. And considering how Colombia is uh, one of the strongest uh, puppets of the United States, at least the government is, um, and how it's like on like the back door of the United States, um, like Cuba and Venezuela, um, it would be very powerful for that revolutionary peace to come for the workers and the farmers and the people of Colombia. Um, so it's just really get context there because it would also be a major threat to U.S. hegemony because also with the situation in Palestine, the U.S.'s grip on Western Asia is faltering, uh, as we see with the Iron Dome being slightly shattered uh, by how many rockets are being fired at it currently. Um, so it, it, it relates and it's a very important context. And you've answered some of my later questions, which is good for timing. <laughs> um, so my next question for you is you, you did mention this. So at least briefly for time purposes, um, not too briefly, though, what is the revolutionary potential of the Colombian uh, protests? What social, political and economic factions are there? in opposition to the government? What about in support? And before uh, you answer, um, I know that there are some Uribistas on the streets right now, like not a large percentage of them, but that's an important dynamic to uh, discuss in the larger protests. So however you want to address that question, um, floor is yours. Yeah, so to answer your question, I feel like, I, like it was like a couple of different questions, but I feel like I could like answer it in one. So I remember uh, reading this Twitter from a, a comrade out in Latin America. And he said, the day that the Colombian people are able to defeat Uribismo, which is the fascistic movement of, of Alvaro Uribe, is the, it's going to be a triumph for all Latin America, uh, just because this type of ideology is, is an ideology connected with fascism and US imperialism. This is an ideology that is is a it's an ideology that's that's admired by other right-wing presidents in the region whether it's Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil or Sebastián Piñera in Chile or the incoming president of Ecuador Guillermo Lasso 
this would uh, create a, a shockwave towards the continent against, against fascism and against U.S. militarization. And going back to what I said before, uh, the Colombian people, uh, just, just to give more of an essence, when they're, when they're fighting and they're confronting the militarization that's being paid for by U.S. tax dollars, they're confronting this for all of Latin America. They're confronting the militarization that the United States wants to do in Ecuador, in the Galapagos Islands, or in Honduras, or in Brazil, or even countering what the United States wants to do in Venezuela. It's always constantly using Colombian territory to invade our neighbor, Venezuela. So all of this is all interconnected. And, and that's why the Colombian people must have a revolutionary, peaceful movement for Colombia to have peace because this, this would be a revolutionary peace for the continent and that would put a dent in U.S. imperialism and U.S. hegemony. So I hope that answers your question. No, it, it definitely does. It's all about sending shockwaves to the system of the collapse of capitalism. So I think it's a very important political moment. Um, so that definitely answered it. And I, I, um, and I wanted to yeah. say also this too, sorry. Um, also, like, as far as, like, the path for the Colombian people, the path for the Colombian people is that they need to have a project, in my opinion, that's going to lead the, the Colombian people to socially transform their society. When we want to talk about socialism or communism, I mean, the Colombian people have to have their own type of socialism. It can't be a, like a copy of like Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua. Like they, they have to have their own pathways towards their own socialist project. Um, and hopefully, like you asked me also like the potential, this is a potential for this project to develop for, for the Colombian people because we have elections next year. And I, it'd be amazing if Uribe's candidate wins given what's going on right now in the country. So that's one of the biggest hopes that I have for, for the Colombian people if they're able to create a, a revolutionary project that, that could socially transform that society. No, that's that's really important to mention because it's it's one thing to protest against something, specifically Reforma Tributaria, and then it's another thing to build something beyond that. And and like you said, it has to be a project specific to Colombia. That is the only way um, it'll be successful and 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 it'll have longevity. Um, so you know, especially when yeah, go for it. Now, I was going to say, too, like, it also has to be very Latin American. Yes. To talk about Colombian's history and to talk about its Bolivarian roots, even though there's a lot of Colombians that will argue about the figure of Simon Bolivar, that's a whole different cultural discussion. But as far as what he represents, his ideology of Bolivarianism, which has been resurrected by the Venezuelan people due to their Bolivarian revolution, is that uh, this project needs to have essence of socialism, but it needs to have the essence of also um, pan-Latin Americanism, integrationism, because that was the whole concept of Colombia going back to when it was the Gran Colombia, the big country that it was with Venezuela, Ecuador, and Panama, that the whole dream was a united Latin America. So that's also needs to be at the essence as well for, for Colombia. 
Yes, because, uh, and then the last thing uh, we'll mention about it so we can uh, move on um, is, you know, the, the importance of Gran Colombia um, was also seeing uh, how opposed to it that the United States and private capital was. There is a very specific reason why the United States uh, tried so hard to like stratify and separate uh, Latin American countries from each other after the collapse of Gran Colombia or the, the dissolution of it. Um, so it just makes sense why the United States really does not want this revival of Bolivarian socialism. So um, I think I think you really hit the nail on the head with the uh, with the context there. My next question for you is: How is Laminga holding up during, say, repression and paramilitary violence, uh, to the best of your knowledge? And just a quick primer of what Laminga is for people who may not be aware of uh, who they are. Yeah. So Laminga, from my understanding, have held their own in the protests against ESMAD. The mainstream media tried to report the other day that they were coming with machetes, that they were a bunch of uh, indigenous people that were violent and this and that. But people were able to see that it was just very racist, like the reporting on the side of the, of the media trying to say they, they had something saying uh, the citizens and the indigenous people. Indigenous people are citizens. They, they they try to separate them as like if they're they're different from the people of the state and that goes into the the whole context too of like that indigenous people are meant to be the enemies of the state so the the laminga has uh like i said before gone to the city of cali and have joined forces with the grassroots movement on the ground over there against esmod as far as like my understanding of that movement, it's it's a very indigenous movement, and it's very uh, centered in the region of Cauca. Uh, they have a red and green flag, and they as well has they as well have had protests against the government of Ivan Duque in the past due to the violent uh, paramilitary repression coming from like in connection with the state, but the state not wanting to do anything about the the paramilitaries no wonderful thank you so much and uh, like you said um the portrayals of laminga and indigenous leaders in general is racist it's based in the history and context of colombia being a settler society from the spanish empire and it, it, it's all about you know just perpetuating uh settler repression of of indigenous people whose land it truly is you know and it's like it, it's just another form of just settlers being settlers like in the united states and like in israel it's all about pushing indigenous people out so that they can uh build their own quote-unquote dream or project and it's all based in racism land theft and genocide so thank you uh for the context i actually like i said you answered a lot of my questions in um the other context that you were giving us so i only have two left for you and we'll wrap it up for uh, uh your time is there anything else that's important to mention that we haven't mentioned already in this conversation about the situation in colombia I mean, just for people, I mean, for the for the internationalists in the United States to keep their eyes on Colombia, keep sharing any posts that you get from social media. Social media has been a big time trench against this media war in Colombia. As also be aware of what the United States are planning or, or want, like wanting to do in Colombia, just for the fact that Colombia is a big time asset for U.S. imperialism within the region. Like I said before, given the fact that they have nine U.S. military bases there, you had a, actually 
the this the Florida senator Marco Rubio, which a lot of Latin Americans call Narco Rubio, because he himself has also has had connections with Alvaro Uribe, and you know I can't I don't want to say too much, but it probably is the reason why there's a lot of drugs in Florida, in the state of Florida. Uh, but he recently went on Twitter and said that they, you know, that the United States needs to defend Colombia because it's a so-called democracy, is one of the best democracy in South America, and that what's happening is that they're getting infiltrated by the FARC and their Marxist allies within the region. So um, I think it's very important for like the the comrades within the United States to uh, keep their eyes on Colombia and to see what the U.S. government is planning as far as like attempting to try to suppress this rebellion. No, yeah, and the the, the context about, uh, that's a funny nickname about Narco Rubio. <laughs> I'm going to use that now. The, the context about that is that, of course, the United States uh, would be involved with uh, the narco trafficking. Of course, the United States would profit off of it. Um, so it just, it, it would make sense, it, like, if there's no evidence or if there will be evidence later on, it, it, it will make sense regardless because of the United States history on that front. My last question for you is how can citizens and residents of the empire, including members of the Colombian diaspora, support uh, your work? And how can they also support people directly in the struggle in Colombia? And then uh, the last follow-up is like, are there any socials or fundraisers that we could tap into? Um, so yeah, people can follow me on my uh, Instagram. Uh, it's my name, Yamir Chabur. I mean, you, you have my name, so just follow me. I'm always posting on rallies, like uh, go like GoFundMe's towards uh, social movements out in Colombia that I have connections to, as well as you could uh, check out this uh, collective called Red Condor that they do a lot of uh, media work and they're doing a lot of uh, uh, good work as far as like supporting grass grassroots movements on the ground in Colombia, follow media outlets like, like I said, People's Dispatch, The Gray Zone, Venezuelan Analysis. And, and I mean, uh, hopefully uh, where, where people have uh, Colombians, because uh, also another thing too with these protests, a lot of Colombians have been amazed about how many uh, diasporic communities live in the States, whether it's Milwaukee or Denver or California or Arizona. Uh, it goes to show about like our displaced population. But uh, yeah, if, I mean, you have a Colombian uh, community near you, a diasporic community, it's good to go support them and uh, build with them. No, wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, actually, for the post that we're currently editing, because we know that some numbers with like police brutality cases and stuff like that, we're trying to update numbers and information. So this way, when we make our post, it's like the most relevant information that's currently out there. We uh, uh, It's great that you mentioned Red Condor because we had uh, a link uh, to one of their fundraisers that uh, we're going to go link into our Instagram. And basically, we'll make sure to uh, start tapping into Colombian uh, uh, diaspora communities to make sure that we're getting their information to the public because it's one thing for people to report on something and then it's another thing to actually get the people that are being affected to have them report on what's happening if that all you know makes sense but um yeah so that's all the questions i had for you i really appreciate uh your time and uh the the context you've given us so yeah thank you so much yeah, thank you for having me 
¿Qué cosas tiene la vida y San Vita? 